0: This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycensy.org. Our scripture reading this morning uh, comes from the opening verses uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, And you can find it on page 855 in your Bibles and your rows. It's also printed for you in the bulletin uh, if you'd like to follow along. Luke writes in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, To write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is the word of the Lord. Um,
1: Well, good morning. Oh, come on. I know we're 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 few in number this morning, but you have to make up for it with a little enthusiasm. Good morning. And happy new year to y'all. New year, new series uh, for us. And, uh, you know, in our 12 years at New City, we've preached through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John, which leaves us with Luke still to go. And so we're going to get started here in the new year, looking at the Gospel of Luke. And we're not going to do this straight through. We're going to do it over several series, over several years, actually, with lots of breaks in between different portions. In fact, we've already tackled parts of Luke in our Advent series that we did here in the month of December. Uh, But here in the season of Epiphany now, we're going to look at the early chapters, which discuss the early events in Jesus' life and ministry. And so this morning, we're looking at Luke's introduction his opening. Uh, Dave just read it for us. The first four verses are really one sentence in Greek and actually in most of the English translations as well. And opening lines were much more important in the ancient world. Than they are for us uh, today. If you were to go to Joseph Beth, uh, just, you know, over there in Rookwood at the bookstore and look at a book, right? You can open it up. You can flip through it. You can see chapter titles. You could read a little bit here, a little bit there. You can do what I do and look to see if there's any pictures uh, there. If you're all these things to decide if this is something you'd want to spend some time digging into, right? But in the Greco-Roman world, books were not in the form of a codex, right, where you could open it up and flip it through. Rather, they were in a scroll, Right, And so you can't really browse through very easily a scroll, and so you're stuck making those decisions about your interest in the book really from just those first few lines. And so the opening sentence then is crucial for putting the reader on notice of what the whole book is about. It served the purpose of the modern book jacket, the table of contents, and the title page. And so this morning, as we think about Luke's opening sentence, uh, we're going to learn something about how to approach the Bible uh, broadly, and the the Gospels in particular. Secondly, we're going to learn something here about how to deal with doubt. And then finally, we're going to hear an invitation. So we're going to talk about how to approach the Bible, how to deal with doubt, and then finally hear an invitation. All right, so let's get started this morning. Um, How to approach the Bible. There are uh, very few things more fundamental for a Christian than how you regard the Bible, uh, how you approach the Scriptures. It's the reason why the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Presbyterian uh, doctrinal statement, begins with a chapter on the Bible. It's the reason that our Intro to New City class, which Mike made reference to earlier, starts with a section on the Bible. And the reason for that is how you approach the Scriptures determines a lot of how almost everything else shakes out for you in your faith and your practice And Luke is telling us straight away how he wants us to approach his writing. Or to put it another way, he's laying out very clearly what kind of book this is. He tells Theophilus, I went to the eyewitnesses, I investigated other written accounts about Jesus, and now I'm putting all that together, all that I've learned, into an orderly account for you to consider. Now, this is really contrary to what it seems like, anyway, that most people in our culture just assume about the Bible in general and about the Gospels in particular. You know, the the pop culture view of the Bible goes something like this. I've heard this, you know, hundreds of times in different ways, right? But uh, the pop culture view goes something like this. You know, everybody knows, right? Everyone knows that after Jesus died, there were all kinds of legends, Circulating about him. And these legends changed and developed and were embellished over time, like those big fish stories your grandfather told you about, right? And then some of these legends eventually are written down, but much, much later. But there are not just four canonical gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but dozens of other ones out there too. And then about 300 years later, some power brokers in the church in a back room somewhere chose the four gospels. And they did so with the motive of consolidating their own power. I've heard this kind of thing, again, just repeated more or less hundreds of times. But there's a problem with this. It's almost completely wrong. Let me see if I can push back on this just a little bit this morning. I'm not going to take a ton of time on this. But first, let's just think about this. Are the Gospels legends? First, you know, Luke's Gospel opens with a very specific Literary style. Notice, he doesn't begin once upon a time in a land far, far away, right? Instead, it's in as much, Dave just read it for us, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus." Luke's preface is in a very specific literary style. It's a style recommended by the Greek writer Lucian in his book, How to Write History. It's the style that Thucydides begins the history of the Peloponnesian War. Let me just read this to you. This is how the history of the Peloponnesian War begins. But as to the facts of the occurrences of the war, I have thought it my duty to give them not as ascertained from any chance informant, nor as seemed to me probable, but only after investigating with the greatest possible accuracy each detail in the case of both the events in which I myself participated and of those regarding which I got information from others. And the endeavor to discover these facts was a laborious task. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds like Luke's opening. And it does so because they're using the same literary convention there. Luke is writing, as Thucydides was, a historical account, right? Luke's case, it's a historical account of the life of Jesus. But second, notice also that Luke refers to eyewitnesses. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. Now, this is important to think about. You know, legends don't claim to be an eyewitness account or have talked to eyewitnesses. Richard Bachham. PhD, Cambridge professor at University of St. Andrews, just great uh, New Testament scholar. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. It's a lengthy book, dense book, but basically he argues throughout the book that the value placed on eyewitnesses in the ancient world is immense, just huge. I mean, eyewitnesses are a big deal now, but in the ancient world, even more so. I mean, you didn't have video, you didn't have audio recordings, of course, in the ancient world, but also it's a big deal because you didn't have quick access to check out other sources. You can't go to uh, Google a journal article or go to a, a, an easily accessible library to corroborate something. So instead, the highest accountability, the greatest claim a historian can make to accuracy in the ancient world was to point to living eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses that were alive at the time. the historian is writing. In other words, it's a kind of footnoting saying, you don't believe me? Well, go and talk to these folks. Now, who are some of the eyewitnesses mentioned in the Gospels? Well, in Mark chapter 15, uh, the Gospel writer, Mark mentions that Simon of Cyrene is made to carry the cross for Jesus by the Roman soldiers. And Mark just tosses in there that Simon is the father of Rufus and Alexander. Now, if you're reading this, this adds absolutely nothing to the story except that the earliest readers of Mark's gospel lived in Rome. And in Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul specifically greets Rufus, who lives there. So, why does Mark include the names of Rufus and Alexander? Because the earliest readers would know them. They could go ask them. He's footnoting his work. He's saying, go check it out. They'll corroborate what I'm writing to you. Other places, All four Gospels say that Peter cuts off the ear of a Roman soldier in the Garden of Gethsemane, but only John mentions him by name. Malchus, why? Because John's readers know of this person. The Gospels all tell the story of Jesus healing the blind man, but only Mark names him as Bartimaeus. Why? Because Mark's readers know him. Luke chapter 24 The resurrected Jesus meets some disciples on the road. One of them goes unnamed, but the other one is called Cleopas. Now, why does Luke name him? Because he's inviting his readers to check it out. Cleopas was still alive when Luke was writing. And Richard Baucom says, if you're writing fiction, you either name the folks or you don't. But if you're writing history in antiquity, you name the folks that you've spoken to. You name them as a footnote. And Luke is saying in the preface here, I've followed these things closely. I've done an investigation. I've looked at what others have written. I've talked to the eyewitnesses. This is how you write history. It's not how you perpetuate a legend. But maybe you're thinking, you know, couldn't the Bible writers, couldn't the biblical writers be writing legends in the style of history? Couldn't they just be writing fables as if they were historical? And I suppose that's theoretically possible, but you have to remember that the genre of historical or realistic fiction did not exist at all at this time in history. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put it. Now, remember, he was an Oxford professor of literature, world-class literary critic. He said this. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths, all my life. I know what they're like. I know that not one of them is like this, that the Gospels. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown writer in the ancient world without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. A reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Now, he's a professor, so he has to get a little snooty there at the end. That's kind of the way you do things in the academic world. But his point is, right, that to believe the gospel writers are writing fiction in the style of history, you have to believe then that they're the first ones to ever do this and the only ones who will do it for centuries and centuries afterward. Now, of course, none of that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that what Luke is writing here is true, but it does simply show what the gospel writers thought they were doing. Luke is intending an historical account. He's not trying to write a legend, a fable, or a myth. But then secondly, all right, well, but isn't it true that these things are written down so much later, years and years and years and years, centuries later? But actually, all four of the gospel accounts were written down during the lifespan of the eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life. We know this for two reasons. First, we know because we have plenty of early Christian writers making reference to quoting or alluding to the gospel accounts as early as the very beginning of the second century. They're referring to these things as if they're already in existence, they're already uh, been written down, they're already being circulated and used in churches. But then secondly, we have lots of manuscript evidence dating the gospels to the first century, well within the lifetime of the events surrounding Jesus. And I'll give you just one really prominent example of this, P52. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you, but Papyrus 52. Sometimes it's called St. John's Fragment. You can Google this and read more about it. But John's Gospel has always been dated as the latest of the four Gospels in the New Testament. Well, P52 was a papyrus, a scrap of an ancient scroll found in Egypt in the 20th century. And its importance is that it contains a significant portion of John chapter 18. So John's Gospel And this is a scrap from that. And the date of P52 is 100 to 110 A.D., so the very beginning of the second century. And all the scholars acknowledge that copies were meticulously produced. They were hand-copied. And so it took a while for it to get to Egypt. And if that's the case, then it had to have been written down somewhere around 85 to 90 A.D., the end of the first century. So here you have the latest of the Gospels We have manuscript evidence that were written down within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of the events of Jesus' life. It's simply not true that these were written down centuries later. Now, by contrast, some of the so-called Gnostic Gospels, the ones that aren't included in the Bible, these are written down much, much later, which is one of the reasons why they were rejected by the early church. Well, then, last question sort of in this vein I mean, did the church accept these gospels and not the others, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not the others, in order to consolidate power? Now, I'll be honest with you, this argument has always been a little mystifying to me. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you really read these things closely, these would not work as a method of consolidation of power for early church leaders, I mean, if the leaders of the early church, right, if they're the heirs to the apostles and their authority and their power, the apostles are regularly presented in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as failures and dunces. You read these accounts, right, and the leaders look stupid all the time. The Bible advertises their failures, their misunderstandings, their lack of courage, their sin. If you're making up a story in a shame and honor culture, remember, This would be the absolute worst way to go about consolidating power. And also, it's not just the failure of the apostles that are there. It's the account of Jesus' death. The gospels don't present Jesus dying like Buddha or Socrates, serene and peaceful, surrounded by his admirers. Jesus is executed as a criminal among other criminals. He's not serene. He's sweating blood. He's not cool and calm. He's crying out in excruciating pain, complaining to God the Father, why have you forsaken me? In the ancient world, this is not a hero's death. Why would you include this? Because that's what happened. It doesn't help the cause in any other way. And also, we should note the Gospels claimed that the first witnesses to the the biggest event that's recorded there in the Gospels is the resurrection of Jesus. The first witnesses, all the Gospels say, were women. And in the ancient world, the testimony of women was not admissible in a court of law, thought to be unreliable. So again, why in the world would you include this detail? It doesn't help your cause in any way. You only include it if it's true if that's what happened. All this to say, Luke and the other gospel writers are writing historical accounts. And so if we're evaluating their claims, we can't just dismiss this. We can't categorize it as fiction or fable or legend, accept it or reject it, but we have to do so in fairness to how these accounts are written. And Luke says, I went to the eyewitnesses. I researched what others have written about Jesus, and now I'm putting together an orderly account For you to consider. Luke's opening gives us a sense of how to approach the Bible. But then, secondly, this opening gives us a sense of how to deal with doubt. You know, the background to this book is is personal. Luke is writing this, we're told, in verse 3 to Theophilus. Now, just a quick little bit about Luke here. His name is Greek which probably means he's a Gentile, which might explain then why this gospel hones in on the themes of Jesus being the savior of the world and not just the Messiah of Israel. Colossians chapter four tells us that he's a doctor, Luke, the beloved physician. The commentators point out that Luke has a doctor's gift of observation with more detail than the other gospel accounts. In fact, Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. Anybody know what the second longest book in the New Testament is? It's Acts, which is Luke's other book, his other writing in the New Testament. Luke was a travel companion of the Apostle Paul. Paul mentions this in 2 Timothy and Philemon. And in the book of Acts, Luke actually comes into the story at one point. Starting in chapter 16, it's not just Paul did this or Peter went there, but it's we did these things. We went on this journey. So a little bit about Luke. But this is written, we're told, to Theophilus. Theophilus means friend of God. Which has led some to think that this is a generic title. Anyone who's open to being a friend of God should should read this. But uh, Luke gives him the, the the title "most excellent Theophilus," which would be the way you would address a Roman official. And so, rather than a symbolic name, in all likelihood, Theophilus is Luke's patron. He's the you know sort of the main uh, giver in uh, Luke's Kickstarter, right? To get. Uh, this project off the ground to get this account of Jesus' life into print. And in verse 4, Luke says, here's the reason I'm writing. Theophilus, here's the reason I'm writing, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've been taught. And the word for certainty is the word for truth. Theophilus has heard things about Jesus, but he's having trouble wrapping his mind around it all, which is no surprise. Jesus' own family and friends found Jesus' teaching difficult to reckon with at points? And so Luke writes, I put this together, Theophilus, so that you would know the truth. And I said this tells us something about how we're to deal with doubt, because what I want you to notice is what Luke doesn't do. He doesn't chastise Theophilus. He doesn't shame him. He doesn't ignore his doubts, nor does he encourage uh, Theophilus to bury them. Instead, what does he do? He engages. He engages them. And personally, this has been really important in my own faith. I'm a person who, at times, has had a lot of questions. I've had doubts, struggles. Unfortunately, I came into Christianity in an environment where these things were not shut down. I was allowed to struggle, I was allowed to ask, I was allowed to wonder. And if it wasn't for that kind of climate, I'm not sure where I would be spiritually. You know, um, just a couple weeks ago, December 21st, was the Feast of St. Thomas, or sort of high church traditions that celebrate those kind of face days. And Thomas, of course, is where we get the phrase, Doubting Thomas. He was the disciple who had the most doubts about the resurrection of Jesus. And on that day, on the Feast of St. Thomas, the church is encouraged to pray for the doubters, That you know, which should be a reminder to us all that in the Bible, doubt is never encouraged. But doubters are welcome. Let me just say a few things about doubt this morning. And the first thing is this, um, you know, there is a type of doubt that you might call uh, dismissiveness or prejudice. And this is something, uh, this is the kind of thing that you want to do everything you can to get rid of in your life, because the fruit of dismissiveness is generally contempt for those with whom you disagree. It lacks serious thoughtfulness. It lacks engagement. Instead, it's more eye-rolling and dehumanizing. Tara Parker Pope, in her book on marriage, which is called For Better, she cites, uh, eye, she's a therapist. She cites eye-rolling as one of the major warning signs that a relationship is in trouble. She says, marriage counselors, look out for eye-rolling, because it signals contempt For the other person. A successful marriage, she says, can handle disappointment, disagreement, pain, frustration, but it cannot handle the complete dismissal of the other. And there's another kind of doubt that we also want to avoid, which we might call doubt for doubt's sake. In other words, this is where we've turned doubting into a goal, into a form of sophistication. Rather than honest doubts, we've actually made doubting into an idol, as something to aspire to quote C.S. Lewis here again. He addresses this in his book, The Abolition of Man. Listen to what he said. He says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond, it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It's of no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. In other words, doubt is not an end in and of itself. The goal is to move through doubt to find something to root yourself in, to find something firm to finally plant yourself upon. Or as G.K. Chesterton puts it, he says, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. Doubt as an end is not a good thing, but doubt as a process actually really can be, because there are honest doubts, and they can be really helpful in growing as a person, even growing in your faith. Some of our doubts are are not arguments so much as they actually are deep questions, and so my encouragement to you is to ask them to go to God's Word to talk those doubts through with other people, to turn your doubts into prayers. God can handle your questions when you bring them. The story of the Bible is the story of God welcoming people of weak, incomplete faith. In Mark chapter 9, there's a story of a father who desperately wants to believe that Jesus can help his son, and so he prays, I believe, help my unbelief. It's a great doubters prayer, I believe, Help my unbelief. So don't run away from God when you have doubts, but rather run toward him. Bring the doubts to him. Fourthly, then, you know, as we're thinking about what does it mean to be a community, have mercy on those who doubt. Listen to what Flannery O'Connor says. She says, I think there is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. I know what torment this is, but I can only see it in myself anyway as the process by which faith is deepened. What people don't realize is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket when, of course, it is the cross. It's much harder to believe than not to believe. If you feel you can't believe, you must at least do this. Keep an open mind. Keep it open toward faith. Keep wanting it. Keep asking for it. And leave the rest to God. She says, I think there is no suffering greater than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. This is why in the little short epistle at the end of the New Testament, Jude. Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. And you see that same kind of patience from Luke toward Theophilus. A couple more things here real quick. Play fair. You know, this is Flannery O'Connor again. She says, remember, she says, keep an open mind. If you can't, believe, feel like you can't believe, you must at least do this. Keep an open mind, keep it open toward faith. You know, to play fair means that you can't spend your whole life trying to deconstruct something without actually constructing something to put in its place, right? At least you can't do that and still be intellectually honest about it. And so when we do have doubts about Christianity, you have to say, okay, then well, what fits better there? And then you have to apply the same standards of doubt and skepticism and critique to whatever else that you're proposing to put in its place. Doubt your doubts, in other words. And at the end of the day, I'm convinced that Christianity stands up really well to whatever other view we might want to put in its place. But then finally, considering doubt here, and this will really lead us into the next point as well, circle back to Jesus I mean, what does Luke offer to Theophilus? Is it ultimately a philosophical argument? Does he give him a lesson in ethics? No, at the end of the day, he gives Theophilus an account of the life of Jesus. You know, people say all the time, I would believe if God would give me a watertight argument that Christianity is true. Now, first of all, if you went to a philosophy class, a professor would tell you there is no such thing as a watertight argument for anything. That is, there is no thing that any of us believe that it's impossible to cast some doubt upon. But listen, the way the Bible addresses doubt over and over again is not to give a watertight argument, but to hold up for us a watertight person. That is, to point you to Jesus. The most compelling thing about Christianity is not an argument. It's a person. And so when in doubt, it's best to go right to the story of Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. Luke's purpose in writing is to point someone who has doubts, somebody who hasn't figured it out, who can't put it all together, to point them toward the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which really brings us to the last point. right? We said first this opening tells us something about how to read the Bible. Second, Luke's preface here helps us to know what to do with doubt. And then third, this opening sentence, and really all of Luke's gospel is an invitation, an invitation to consider Jesus. I almost called this last point here, all the things. Because did you notice how often the term things is used? Verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things, That have been accomplished among us. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past. Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And that term uh, translated for us things, it means doings or events. And it's not just doings or events in general that Luke is inviting us to consider, but the doings and events specifically related to Jesus Christ. And it's not here, just here in the very beginning, the opening lines of Luke. It's actually, this comes up again in the very last verses of Luke. In Luke 24, at the end, uh, the same terminology. Jesus walks on the road to Emmaus with a couple of crestfallen disciples. Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? They don't recognize him at this point. And they say, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened these last few days? And Jesus says, what things? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, mighty in deed and word. We had hoped that he would be the one to deliver Israel. but They crucified him. Implication being they couldn't reconcile. They couldn't wrap their mind around Jesus dying and him still being the Messiah. And then Luke resp- or Jesus responds to them this way. This is Luke 24. Starting with verse 25, Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then they sit down to a meal, and as they break bread together, their eyes are open, they make the connections, their hearts burn within them, we're told, and they saw Jesus for who he really was. See, in the opening and in the closing lines of the Gospel of Luke, you have people who are struggling with doubt. Theophilus, and then these guys at the end on the Emmaus Road. And in both cases, the invitation is to draw near to Jesus. Luke, and the Bible more broadly, is not just a collection of random things, doings, events. But it's a narrative centered on how Jesus Christ is the hope of the world and how his life, death, and resurrection will make all things new. Phil Reichen put it this way. He said, Luke's gospel is for anyone who needs to know Jesus. It's for people who have never met Jesus before and for people who need to meet him again as if for the very first time. And so I want to invite you to join with us this January and February as we get started in the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke and as we, in this new year, consider Jesus. So would you pray with me, and the band's going to come up and lead us in another song here as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper. But let's pray together. Almighty God, you called Luke the physician to be an evangelist and a physician of the soul. And so may it please you that by the wholesome medicines of the narrative of Jesus that he's provided for us, that all the diseases of our souls may be healed through the merits of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's, it's him that we long to encounter this morning. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycency.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcityc-i-n-c-y.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.